Welcome to the Recession Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm Sam Newell, your host, and it is my goal to educate you on how to make profitable, low-risk real estate investments that will cash flow through any economy. I interview the top real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the country to find out what they have learned and implemented since the 2008 recession. With over 10 years in real estate investing, it has become my goal to help others invest for double-digit returns, but to also stay safe and not get caught in the next downturn. Tune in and become recession-proof. All right. Well, Jens, thank you so much for jumping on my podcast. I've known you for what? When did we first meet? In Chicago? I think so. It's been probably a year and a half or something. Chicago. So it was a year ago in August that we met at Boot Camp and... You've done some really big things, and, and it's been fun watching you take down deals and and um, just, yeah, doing deals and, and investing in real estate. So for our listeners, Jens, how long have you been in real estate or real estate investing? Hey, Sam. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I'm pretty excited about you know, kind of connecting with you and talking about the common passion here. So yeah, I've been in real estate probably coming up on three and a half, four years now since I started investing, you know, follow the traditional path of working and getting good at job and paying into saving my 401k until one day I realized that's not going to work in the long run. So I discovered real estate investing after that. There you go. Okay, so three, four years and you started as a kind of a passive investor first, right? Is it, am I right? Yeah, it's kind of a mix, right? I bought a couple of smaller property, a couple of fourplexes in Albuquerque, New Mexico. But then also, you know, I started doing, you know, listening to the podcast, you know, reading blogs and stuff. And so I, I felt like, hey, if I'm going to put some of my my own, my money into it, I better also do it on the on the passive side through my, my self-directed IRA just to kind of go, you know, jump both feet in the book you know, just to really get the exposure from actively and passively and see what I liked best and so forth. Right. So I kind of did both at the same time. Awesome. You know, it's funny you say that. I just interviewed a gentleman who specializes in helping people take their you know, self-directed 401ks, IRAs, and invest into real estate and other businesses and, and um, syndications or flipping. And I think that's one of the smartest things you can do, especially if you have a Roth, you know, because then all the money you make is tax-free. But what I wanted to start with is, you know, you've been in real estate for a few years. You're doing really cool projects with some people that I know and respect, and you've taken down a lot of units. You're doing some cool stuff. But take me back, oh, I don't know, to when you are a teenager. You're not from the U.S. You're an immigrant from Denmark, right? That's right. So were you thinking you'd be a syndicator and, and buying millions of dollars of real estate back then? Or what were you thinking about as a teenager? In debt? <laughs> that was the furthest from my mind as it possibly could be, right? I mean, real estate was something you lived in. It was the house you, you know, you, you grew up in or whatever. That was as, as far as real estate went. And even when I started, like, you know, as a young adult looking, looking to find a place to live, you know, I didn't never even thought about who were the people that owned these properties, right? It was just, hey, I need a place to rent. Let me see to find some somewhere where I can I can rent and so forth. You know, I think my first actual investment was we, I couldn't actually find a rental. This is the thing that's crazy, but back then it was so hard to find rentals in in Copenhagen where I, where I lived for a while. So we bought a, me and some friends. We pretty much created a a, a JV 
of an apartment. We bought this old, like five or six bedroom apartment building, like the 1800. And we each, you know, put, put like, it was like two grand down or whatever it was. And we, you know, we basically did a JV, got a mortgage and came up with a down payment. And we, we owned that, uh, we owned that apartment. And actually, once I moved, we, I sold my share to somebody else who then took over and, and, and so forth. So coming to think of that, that was my first, real estate investing i guess i did so that's awesome so you guys did a joint venture how old were you then when you did your first joint venture without even knowing it <laughs> i would even know what it was right it was uh i was in my early 20s i had just moved i grew up in the countryside you know middle of nowhere and that was my i got a job in the big city of copenhagen and i moved there and you know saved a little bit of money and that was yeah i think 21 22 something like that is, is my the age i have and I wish I still had that apartment because they've gone through and modernized that part of the city. So that thing is probably worth 20 times what it was 20 oh. years ago, you know? <laughs> wow. Cool. Well, you know, I'm curious. I don't get a lot of people that um, are immigrants on the show. Tell me about growing up in Denmark, you know, as a kid and, and outside of Copenhagen in the, you know, I guess, is it farmland or, or kind of tell me about that? Yeah, I grew up in the farmland in, in the countryside, literally, on a small old, it used to be a farm and my parents didn't, didn't farm. They had a big garden and we grew, it's a funny story. We grew all the potatoes, Denmark and, you know, along with some of the other Northern countries eat a lot of potatoes. We grew, have a big garden. So we grew all the potatoes that we ate for the whole year for a family of four. We grew them in our own garden. We wow. pretty much had potatoes. I'd swear every single day. <laughs> it was a treat if we could have pasta or something like that growing up. It was potatoes, um, boiled potatoes every day. <laughs> well, I'm from Idaho, and that's all people oh, know. That's right. Potatoes, right? So <laughs> <laughs> it's true. But we never grew any. We just had all the farmers around us where we bought, you know, sweet potatoes, yams, any type of type of potato you can think of. What we got. So absolutely. You grew up as a not really a farmer, but growing your own food at the garden with your family. And what did your parents do? Yeah, my mom was actually, she was a, um, a lab technician at a local dairy because another thing Denmark is famous for is, is, is milk or dairy production, right? So she was a lab technician, make sure the, the milk was safe. And my dad, he, he, he was a truck driver. He actually delivered milk to, to, to various, well, he used, early on, he was picking up milk from the dairy farms and delivered to the dairy. Later on, he was delivering the final product out to the stores and stuff like that. So and I actually, as a teenager, I worked in the dairy too. So that was like where everybody went to work in the small town I was in, right? Luckily, I I had bigger plans and bigger ideas. So I didn't get stuck there for the rest of my life. But that dairy is still in full production. So That's cool. So so milk and potatoes was what you had growing up, basically. That's right. <laughs> uh, well, it's funny. We have a similar, you know, I grew up in Utah until I was about nine or 10. And then, or I guess till I was 11 and then Boise, Idaho. And Boise... I think our total population is a couple hundred thousand. So it's small town compared to a lot of people in the U.S. But I was on the outskirts. So we had cornfields and potato fields, onion fields all over the place. And and one thing I didn't want to do either is get stuck in, in Meridian and, or Boise, Idaho. And, and that's an interesting, interesting, similar childhood growing up next to farms. Wow. Tell me what took you out of, of that and... and sounds like you got in the tech industry or, or where'd you go from there? 
Yeah. So, you know, when I moved to Copenhagen, I got in, got my first job. Actually, it was in the telecommunication industry. This was in the early 90s. So it's you now 26, seven years ago. So it was a while ago. And I was in telecommunication and um, I was working for the Danish telco. Then that was before competition was really open. And I actually was working with some guys out of uh, the UK, out of uh, London, England, who, who at one point in line, I remember 1994, they offered me a job to come to London, England to work for them in, they were doing some implementation of some hardware and software. And they're like, Hey, you got the right skills. Do you want to come to the UK and work with us? Like, yeah, what can possibly go wrong? <laughs> and so, yeah, you know, at 23 years old, I moved to London, England and my English was serviceable, but not that great. Right. So it was a bit of a culture shock to come from a million Copenhagen, like a million people, and, and London was like 8 million people. But hey, I was young, and that was all kinds of fun to, to, to live there for a while. There you go. Cool. <laughs> and you had to learn English. That's neat. I had, you know, had English in school for probably 10 years, but if you don't speak it every day, you gotta, it takes a little time to, to, to get very fluent in it. Right? Yeah. Well, same with me. I, you know, I took Spanish in high school, and my church, I, you know, I did a two year mission for my church, and they sent me to Peru. And so you go to nine weeks of Spanish intense all day long Spanish classes. And then they shipped me out to Peru and, and I had to, you know, teach Christianity from the Bible in Spanish. And I, I so I, I had the reverse. I don't know how it was for you learning English, but I could speak it very easily. I could read it, but I could not understand what people were saying. I was just like, <laughs> it took me two months until I could start really and most of my fellow Americans could understand, but they couldn't talk, they couldn't read. So I don't know how it was for you, but I just could not understand what people were saying. It was it was a mix. I mean, because, you know, the, the school English we learned was very different than the English you speak in the pubs in the, in England, right? And just with different accents and everything else, right? Because I'd watched plenty of, you know, movies and TV shows that, was, that were in English, but just... Brita's English is very different and, and if you have an accent too. So it was a mix. It was, it took a little while to get up to speed on everything, you know. Got it. So how'd you wind up in the U.S. from the U.K.? So that was the same company. It was really an American company actually with its affiliate uh, office in, in London. And in 1996, they were like, you know, we need, they were selling telecommunications communication equipment all over the world and they wanted somebody in the headquarters in the u.s to travel everywhere so i moved to the u.s in 1996 and proceeded over the next several years to travel literally like everywhere i was probably in every european or western european country i was you know southeast asia malaysia the philippines hong kong japan and just doing that was when you know tele telecommunication was booming so I just yeah. traveled everywhere, which is a great experience because I always, I got so comfortable being in an uncomfortable place or a different place. Like, Hey, you fly somewhere and you're like, okay, I don't know the language. I don't know the city. I don't know, even know I'm going tomorrow. Well, I always have an address, but just kind of throwing myself out there. And that was a huge kind of growth opportunity for me personally, because I, you know, as I mentioned, growing up in a small town in the middle of nowhere, that, to that experience of traveling the world was just, it's pretty awesome. So that was, that was a great experience. That's really neat. So, very cool. So you, I mean, you've literally been everywhere. That's, that's cool. man. <laughs> so, so are you still traveling quite a bit or, or tell me what you're doing now? You know, I travel for, 
for my you know my real estate business and then for for pleasure i mean i was in italy this year on vacation met up with my my sister and her family in italy and um so not the international travel is not so much, not i mean into denmark occasionally to see the family there so yeah so, so you, you're traveling a little bit but for pleasure but didn't you go mountain biking in the alps or something or didn't i, I saw something on facebook yeah, that was the trip to Italy, Northern Italy this summer. I brought my mountain bike over there and did some mountain biking and some road riding and stuff. That's kind of my big, uh, that's my big hobby is the cycling. Hence, where I live now is awesome because I live in, in southwestern Colorado right in the mountains here. So I get to do a lot of that. I think I saw a Facebook post last week. You were mountain biking in a blizzard. <laughs> well maybe it was you know we get a little bit of snow here and there so <laughs> i think it may have been a facebook live in a snowstorm yeah that's, <laughs> that's awesome you gotta have a fun hobby that gets you out and you're very active so that's cool but so you travel a lot less now you you have your day job but tell me where how you split your time you you're doing a ton of real estate investing you help a lot of uh you know limited investors uh get into these deals that you're also doing but tell me how you kind of split your time up yeah, so I think, you know, yes, I still have a W-2 job. You know, I'm an IT manager and uh, and I do all this real estate stuff. But really what I've found is it's it's around being very disciplined around your time and say, okay, these, you know, plan out every day, right? So I get up at 5 a.m. and I really spend like the first hour every day doing my hour of power, as I call it. You know, an hour, it's like 20 minutes of some strength or, or yoga exercise, 20 minutes of kind of, reviewing my goals and do some journaling affirmations and visualization. I'm kind of big into that whole personal development stuff. And then yeah. 20 minutes, uh, either reading something, you know, growth, either business or, or inspirational or something. So really just start the David intention. And then I kind of look at what do I want to achieve today? Right. Yeah. You know, and then, then I go to work, I'm in the office by seven in the morning. Right. So by the time I'm there, I've already been out of bed for like over two hours and done more than most people probably get accomplished in a day. Right. Um, you know, then I have some flexibility around my job that, you know, breaks and other things. I can make some calls and, answer some emails and stuff, you know, but then at lunch, I pretty much go and exercise again because I really, if you, I want a healthy body that supports a healthy mind, right? I don't want to be, I don't want to get to, I see a lot of people like, oh, I don't have time to exercise. Well, you better have time to be sick then because if you don't take care of yourself, that's where you're going to end up. So that really pay, uh, plays a high importance on, on that staying fit. And, that's, huge. That, that's really important. I I used to get to the gym by 5.30. My buddies I work out with now, I think we're at 6 a.m. But that's huge. I mean, you, you start the day off so much better. If you're healthy, you get your blood flowing. I drink a ton of water in the morning because that helps. But, yeah, I, I get questions. I have this kid I mentor. He just he liked the car I drove. He messaged me on Facebook said, hey, will you be my mentor? And I was like, okay. I don't have time to go to the gym. I'm like, well, what time do you get up? He's like, well, I get up at 7. I'm like, well, I'm usually – working by seven and I've already been to the gym and, and I'm, I've spent time making my kid breakfast. And so by the time you're getting up, I've already done quite a bit every day. So he's like, okay. So he's starting to get, try to get up and go to the gym and you know, it, he has weight issues. He's not happy with his body. And, and so I, I think that's huge. It's start of any successful person. And it's funny as I meet these, you know, and you're in my mastermind group with Rod and these other mastermind groups, almost everyone says what you just said. They get up early, they go to the gym, and they start with having a really healthy lifestyle. 
because that affects everything else they do. No, absolutely. You know, and I think just, just that healthy, that, you know, if you feel good, if you're, you know, if you have the, the weight you want everything else, then that fuels that, that, that your mind as well. Right. And, and if you see that success, okay, well, it's interesting too. kind of, you know, I've been a, I've been a cyclist and a bike racer for like 20 years. That's my kind of my big hobby. And I, I, I talk a lot about being uncomfortable and I have been so uncomfortable racing my bike, just being nervous going to the start line, being out there and it's, you know, just suffering because it's so freaking hard, everything else. Right. And it's like, huh, I've been used to being uncomfortable, putting myself in that position because I knew if I did that and, and, and just trained and, and really had that goal, I could be successful in that. Now I'm getting older, so I'm not exactly getting any faster, but I'm like I can apply the same principles to anything else in life. Right. And that's, that's kind of been my driving force to, uh, to, to, to grow my business and, and take action. That's great, man. That, I mean, you have to stay uncomfortable. If you're comfortable, you're not growing. If you're not growing, you're doing the opposite. You're atrophying and, exactly. and that's great. You know, and, and in order to be a good investor, you actually have to get uncomfortable. You have to spend the time and the effort and look for the deals that other people won't look for and find the value that other people can't find. So I think that's great. So you're, you're, you're a manager, you have a management position at your W2 job, but you spend a lot of time I and mean, you're going to Erie, Pennsylvania soon to work on a deal there. I know I was just with you in Florida uh, for a mastermind group. I know you're in Albuquerque quite a bit. Um, you're out of Durango, right? That's right. Yeah. So tell me about your real estate, what you've got going on there and, and what you feel has helped you be so successful and, and get to so many doors so quickly. Yeah. I mean, you know, I decided once I, Start, you know, once I learned what real estate is all about, once I started getting the right coaching and mentoring and really learning what this is all about, I was like, okay, I am fully committed to this. And I said myself, like a, it's like a five-year plan to exit my W-2 job, right? But then I want to have my basic, you know, I want to be financially free in the sense that I can, my, my real estate investments will pay for my basic, you know, food and housing and transportation, that sort of stuff, right? So like, okay, here's my goal, right? And my wife, I don't have any kids, so I know that 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 probably helps with the my time. <laughs> uh, I think at the thought of how much money I spend on kids, but yeah. <laughs> that and then time, right? But hey, we yeah. need we need kids to populate the world, right? So that was not in our cards. So so I kind of fully jumped into it. So I you know I bought a few a couple of fourplexes early on because they were inexpensive. It's like oh you know let me learn. And then I, and I've actually just sold one of them last month and I'm on a contract to sell the other one because I realized I don't like those small properties anymore. Can you just repeat what you just said? I don't, uh, don't oh. like the small properties. <laughs> okay, let's touch on this for a second because they're not bad investments. There's just so much more better investments you can do. And that's, I've sold fourplexes. I, I sold over a hundred properties last year and most of those were fourplexes. Sold up, and this year I sold a ton of fourplexes, townhomes. They're a great place to start and to learn exactly what you just said. You learned a lot, and now you're selling them because you realize there's, you know, the grass is greener and it truly is greener on the large multifamily side. So tell me a little bit more about what you learned from owning those fourplexes, and why you're going bigger rather than buying more fourplexes. 
So a couple of things, right? So the area I bought them in was not the greatest. You know, everything looked good on paper, which is, which is a little bit of a risk, right? You know, these, these kind of, you know, C minus, whatever. They look good on paper. It's like, oh, they're cheap. You get good rent. What you don't quite realize is your tenants are, can be a little bit harder to manage. I always have a management company because they're out of state. But they're just, you know, anytime a small bump in the road is there, they can't pay rent. Yep. And then, you know, they go through the whole, you know, if they never can pay rent, they go through the eviction, eviction process, you know, a couple of months of rent plus the, the court fees. Well, then basically your profit for the year probably gone, right? Uh, and that. And just they're more expensive to manage, right? Because the management companies charge you a higher management fee, uh, typically, you know, 10%. You no, know, and, and then all the properties, they just tend to stuff just breaks all the time, right? So if you haven't gone through and really fixed it up and put a lot of money into it, there's just constant issues. Water heater breaks, you know, your, your, your faucets, your toilets, everything. So it's, it's kind of an ongoing, constant expense. So it's really for the headache and the income, I mean, you know, you know, I've definitely made some money on them, but just for the headache. And I was like, my capital is tied up in something that I don't really like that is not really going to grow much in value over time. And maybe, you know, make me 500 or a thousand bucks a month or something. I was like, it's just too many headaches. So I decided to just kind of exit and, uh, you know, and just take that money and, and put it into some larger deals. And so I can, you know, put that money to work where it makes more sense. Absolutely. I, I love what you just said. And, and that's the same experience I've had. I've owned property since 2010. I bought my first investment and I've owned duplexes, fourplexes, triplexes, just sold a triplex and I own townhomes. There's just no economies of scale. So I've made what I feel is great investments and actually I've never made less than 20% total ROI on, on the property. And I think that's pretty darn good. But what you also said is the brain damage or the, the headache. The headache. Yeah. I call it brain damage. <laughs> smaller units because there's no economies of scale. You have to evict people. I had heroin addicts in one of mine and he was beating his girlfriend and I went over there and, and I had to get in the middle of them. And luckily I'm a big intimidating guy. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you don't have to mess with that. And, and I have management companies as well. But Basically, I've made great money on my units, just like you. you. You made some good investments, but I realized there's economies of scale where you have 100 or 200 renters. If one of, one of them moves out, all of your expenses are still paid for, right? Yeah. And, and it's just so much easier. You can have an on-site manager that takes care of everything, and you're going to hear about less of the headaches, and you're going to feel less of the move outs and the expenses when you have those economies of scale and and um, not to mention the non-recourse financing so i mean if one of these fourplexes goes under heaven forbid we have some crazy crash again i mean jens neil said your your name's on the dotted line <laughs> exactly. and credit's at risk right with these larger deals we get non-recourse financing and and it's just way less riskier for less headaches and, and more profit. So I'm with you there. Yeah, it's more of a macro view, right? You know, yeah, you may still have evictions, you may still have vacancies, but you don't deal with Joe Tennant and his drama. That's the that's the on-site manager's problem, right? And you just kind of look at, okay, how are we doing 
and an overall performance of the property. And think if things are not working well, you you look at more of a macro level and say, okay, what can we do to improve the overall property versus how can we get Joe Tenant to pay his rent, right? So, right. So, so it's. Uh, okay, so you're yeah. you're you've sold one and you're under contract to sell your other fourplex. I mean, tell me about your ideal multifamily investment. What what do you like to buy and and what do you look for? Yeah, so you know, just kind of maybe continue the story a little bit. We we then bought a eleven unit by ourselves, which we are heavy rehabbing. Then we bought a thirty eight unit with a couple of JV partners on that, and then we bought another sixteen unit. So really, I have two strategies that that I like to do. I like to buy kind of that fifteen to twenty unit, or maybe bigger, that I can own myself. Myself being me and my spouse, if we can own it outright we don't have to answer to any investors we don't have to sell it in five or six or seven years and we can just keep it for like long-term cash flow and if it's in a in a location that makes sense right so that's kind of one of my strategies but obviously you know you run out of money right because you, you your capital is tied up maybe after a while you can refinance and pull it out right so so that's my idea i like that if i can own it myself you know maybe as i as i accumulate more capital i can buy something bigger and own myself but then in the you know my i think my ideal is that really could go there is like a you know 150 200 250 unit apartment building which i have been involved in because i just think that economy of scale is there they're much more predictable than in, in your cash flow and you just have you know so much better infrastructure to 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 run them and manage them you know so so that's really that's the the direction I've been, I've been moving into, you know, in the syndication world and being a co-sponsor on some deals in that. Awesome. I love it. So can you talk about any of those deals that you've done? Yeah. I mean, I've uh, partnered with a few, you know, a few people in a, key, in a couple of key, uh, key markets. So we did one in Atlanta early in the year that we were repositioning a class B asset that we were repositioning, you know, and, uh, went in there and worked on that and then you mentioned Erie I have a partner I've been Erie Pennsylvania which is kind of a little bit out of most people's kind of a off the radar if you will but uh, it's actually a, a, a good what was that it's kind of a smaller area you wouldn't think to go to but your partner is fantastic I know Jason and awesome awesome guy to invest with yeah so so that's worked really well because it's you know you get property that deep or you know you have the patience and the right type of debt on it that you could ride it out and hold on to it for 12 to 13 years instead of five to seven or, or yep. three to seven. I think like things have to be extra cautious right now, especially if you're still going up learning curves and you know, I wouldn't go in real heavy if you just had a liquidity event and you're listening to this. Right. Well, and I love what you just said. You know, I was getting pitched a deal they were, they were planning on a five-year hold and being able to refi or sell for it for a right. lower cap in five years and I said hold on guys what did you just say you're going to sell for a lower cap you know I don't think right. you can ever bank on that and right. that was their entire exit it was it was based on on selling at a lower cap and and you know so so anything we're looking at now is absolutely a 10-year hold you know if we can get longer financing and a 30-year amortization and Few right. years of interest only great but it's got to be at least a 10-year hold because i think you're right you know trump can pull some more tricks out of his sleeve he's a genius businessman whether you like him or hate him he's doing right. a pretty good job for the economy and and whether that means he's pressuring the fed into keeping rates low artificially for now until he gets reelected, i don't know 
but all I know is is we're getting ready for sure for for another downturn. So anything we buy, like right now, I don't know if you have offices doing something similar, groups doing something similar, unless the asset will break even at 20% vacancy, you know. Right. So in other words, it'll still cover its costs being right. 20% vacant. We won't look at it. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I think that's a pretty common. Uh, thing right now. I was just telling my brother at a, with a real estate investment we were looking at yesterday that in the model, it should be extremely conservative and just assume that 25 to 30% would be empty. So that way, mm -hmm. even if 10% is empty, we're still making money along the way just to be ultra conservative, you know, on the underwriting because it's a new area of real estate investing that he's looking into. So I think, awesome. that, uh, I think that's a good, good assumption to go in with. Yeah, that's great advice. And, you know, to be honest, during 2008, 2009, most markets did not get much worse than 7 to, to 10%. Right. And that's in, you know, C-class and, and right. A-class luxury. Your B and, and good C-class didn't suffer a whole lot, but D-class had up to 12% vacancy. So right. if you're not ready for that, you know, that's going to hurt. That's going to yeah. hurt in a big way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think you always have to look at the assumptions and forecasts with a critical eye if somebody's selling you something because there's never a bad projection. They're never going to say, oh, the worst case scenario <laughs> is that we lose everything or the worst case scenario is this gets foreclosed on. Like their worst case scenario is actually still a pretty decent one. You yeah. still make a IRR of something positive when that's really not the worst case scenario. Right. So I think that uh, you always have to look at those assumptions. And we looked at hotels before that for a client and we're looking at an $80 million hotel in California and the person who is going to acquire it uh, with us said, oh, well, we're going to raise the EBITDA, you know, by X percent per year. And it had been managed by three or four other professional managers. And they'd only been able to raise it a very small percent yeah. every year. And they assumed that every single year they were going to be able to jump it up higher, higher, higher. Maybe they could. But, but they're different, they, right? Yeah, they acted like it was a sure <laughs> thing. And it's like, it's for sure not a sure thing. So Right. You have to put some assumption that's like conservative. Like, let's just assume it went just as well as the last guys ran it and then look at how it does if it goes worse and how it goes, if it goes better. Because uh, just assuming it's all going to go great, that's you know, never the case. Yep. No, I, I think that's really important. Well, you know, I, I'm kind of curious. I never pictured myself buying $30 million apartment buildings. I never pictured myself working with family office type investors. Yet here I am and here you are. What did you want to be when you're growing up? I wanted to be an Air Force pilot and it will kind of end on something fun. But, you know, I was slated to go to the Air Force Academy and fly F-16s. What, what were you planning on doing? Really? Yeah. I mean, in high school, I had started a dozen businesses and, uh, you know, so I, I just love starting businesses and I grew up reading Inc. Magazine and traveling around with my dad to business meetings. So that was uh, definitely in my blood. And I was always, I was selling long distance telephone service to everyone in my high school directory. I'd call all their parents and try to sell them on switching over no way. You know, phone it. services. So uh, I don't know, I kind of had the entrepreneur thing in my blood, but then my first term in college, I was going to be a computer programmer and then like debugging code 10 hours a day drove me nuts in the computer lab. So I switched over to business. And then even though I was in a school of business that had an entrepreneurial, like big slant to it, they had an entrepreneurial campus, everything. Uh -huh. I got a formal letter from the dean saying that my access to the computer lab is going to be cut off if I'm caught trying to start a business on university resources again. <laughs> I showed it to all my professors. I'm like, what the hell is this? I thought this was an entrepreneurial school. You know, and they're like, stop trying to apply what you're learning in class. Oh Can't my do that gosh. on our computers, right? It's pretty funny. 
That's awesome. No, that's awesome. You sound like my best friend I grew up with. I mean, he was buying, buying, you know, Oakley's from China, selling them out of a briefcase when we're sophomores in high school. He was figuring out how to make money doing X, Y, and Z all the time. Now he's making, yeah. you know, money online marketing and, you know, sounds very much like you just has a mind for business and it sounds like that's what you're born for. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I mean, it's like a game. I, I love playing any type of game, board game, video game, sports games. Like I can't stand watching sports because I'm like, why am I not playing a game? Why am I staring at these people having fun, right? And so yeah. like, if I can make business like a game and have fun playing business, then that's kind of kind of the goal. That's awesome. Well, you've done a great job with it. Look, we're, we're about out of time. I really appreciate you being on the podcast. I'm going to, you know, give you a nice introduction after we jump off. Anything specific you'd like me to tell our listeners about, about you and what you do in the intro? Nothing super specific. I mean, just that if they are an ultra wealthy family looking for resources, our centamillionaires.com website has a whole bunch of free, like eight giveaways on that website. And that, that's the Centimillionaire Advisors website. That's centimillionaires.com. Uh, that's probably the most critical thing that maybe I didn't mention earlier. But otherwise, you know, whether you're raising capital or investing capital, I think it's just really high integrity is what leads to good results. So if you're true to who you are and what your background is and what your strengths are, you'll do better as an investor. And same if you're trying to raise money, you know. Thank you for saying that. Oh my gosh, I'm going to repeat that in your intro for sure, because that's huge. I'm watching a company right now that I, I used to work with or work closely with. They're struggling with with integrity and, and doing the right thing. And it's sad to watch. It's frustrating. And you and yeah. I, I'm sure, have both run into that in our careers. So integrity is yeah. huge. That's I'd rather, I'd rather, I tell my clients all the time, I'd rather lose a deal, lose a commission than, than do one that I don't feel good about or don't feel like you should do. And Right. And it's always more important than money. And then if you have that, it's funny how if you have that attitude, money will find you, you know, yeah, exactly. clients will find you and they'll come back. And I had a client, I, I warned them not to do a deal and they did it anyway. Six months later, they're like, wow, well, we fired our realtor and you're a guy now because we sure got hosed on that deal. You told us not to do. Right, um, right, right. Yeah. For yeah, sure, it comes around. Can't be chasing money or commissions, you know, doing the right thing. So, 